Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mulkel, here with my temporal co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a cultist of the dark who just wants to, like, improve things for the common person, you know? Ooh, I like the sound of this. Tell me more. Well, we get a bad rap, um, but that's just the propaganda. That's propaganda. <laughs> that's just the propaganda by those Ace Sedai magical folk, if you know what I mean. Propaganda is the indoctrinating stories that your dad tells you. <laughs> yes. Thanks for the dad joke, Jamie. You're welcome. That's right. And I think you make a lot of valid points, you know, about the whole dark, dark uh, cultist sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I knew you guys would understand. I've aspired to be a cultist for a long time, so. Well, I I can tell you a little something about... Do you have, like, a pamphlet I could read? I have several. (laughs) Nice. Wow. Asa die. Asa, no thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But speaking of Asa die, who am I? Who would die? I'm a member of a, a group of traveling peoples. That wear colorful clothes and have a very poetic and fun society. We roam around, and groups like mine have never been persecuted throughout history. Oh, awesome. What's your name? I'm Jack Olander. Very cool. That's right. Of the traveling folk. That's right. Traveling artistic folk have never been persecuted. The personhood of the traveling pants. Everybody always looks forward to seeing you come into town. That's right. Yeah. That's right. There's never been any problematic stereotypes about you or misinformation that has led to horrendous world events aimed at you. That's right. And especially not many times over. They would. They surely wouldn't do it more than once. That's true. They wouldn't even do it once. Not even. That would be rude. Exactly. Were it to happen, though, and then people to understand all the negative stereotypes about you, they surely would never perpetuate it willingly. That's True. right. Yeah. That's right. Well, I'm glad we got that out of the way, guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what are we here to do today? We're here to talk about The Wheel of Time, which is a television show that we have been talking about on our satire TV series for the last several weeks. Yes. Several. And today we're going to be talking about episode three, A Place of Safety. But before we get into it, we should probably give a shout out to our patrons. We probably should. And we will. They're literally the reason we're able to keep doing this. Yes. We want to thank our patrons who donate to us every month. And if you want to be a supporter of the show, you could head over to patreon.com slash swords and satire and join one of our patron tiers. Join the community. Let our numbers grow and then our cult will become more influential. Jamie, we, we indoctrinate them later once they've joined. Sorry, I said the loud part quiet and the quiet part loud. Yeah, it's okay. But you get tons of cool perks if you join, so... Everybody loves bonus episodes and outtakes. We can tell you more about our cult bylaws after that. Seems like a hell of a deal. <laughs> but okay... Enough shameless self-promotion. I mean, I have no shame, so I'm fine with it. But, anyways, it's probably time to talk about The Wheel of Time, 
And I think to do that, we should probably summarize what happened in this episode. So, um, as of the last episode, uh, the members of our traveling party have all kind of been separated. Don't ever split the party. Why didn't they listen? You know, it's just something that everybody has to learn for themselves. Everybody kind of has to make a mistake and then hopefully learn from it. That's fair. Or just never learn. (laughs) So, Moraine and Lan are together, as usual. They're best friends and co-workers. Yes. They just happen to take very erotic baths together. As you do. They are joined by Nineveh. Nineveh, even. Nineveh. They say Nineveh on the show. It's really annoying. We've got a real Ang-Ong situation going on here, don't we? Whenever I was reading the books, I always, in my head, read it as Nineveh, so... It's really discon or are really jarring whenever. <laughs> Is it Sokka or Soka? <laughs> M Night Shyamalan, please. <laughs> so Nynaeve <laughs> is threatening Lan. Moraine's kind of down for the count, and uh, she wants to find out where her fellow Two Riverians are. <laughs> <laughs> two Riverees. Yeah. Eventually, they stop threatening each other, and Nynaeve agrees to help Moraine. She heals her. After a couple of days of Moraine, like, kind of healing up with a healing poultice, they head out on horseback. Lan leads them to another group of traveling Aes Sedai who believe they have captured the dragon reborn. But Moraine believes that they probably have a false dragon because she thinks she knows she's pinpointed who actually is the dragon reborn. I mean, Moraine is just playing the odds here. She's like, it's only a one in four chances, this guy. I've got a four in five chance. Right. Wait, it's a one in, yeah, one in five. I said it right. I know, Mavs. <laughs> That's right. But what the heck is going on with Matt and Rand? What's the deal with those two crazy fellas? Well, something got into Rand because he is on a comedy bender. He's joking around. (laughs) He's in a good mood. Matt is suffering. And it's funny. (laughs) Suffering is funny. I I believe that television and film have taught me that over the years. That's right. Luckily for the duo, they find a fisherman's village in the mountains and a dead man in a cage. Yeah. Now, I believe this is a fishing and a mining village, so they've got a real solid economy, I'm sure. That's right. You use water to mine the dirt, and you use the dirt to drink the water. Mine the fish. Yes. You're born in the dirt, you live in the dirt, and you die in the dirt. You're a dirty little fella. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a town of dirty boys and girls. That's right. Oh, boy. And, uh, yeah, and so they find their way to a tavern, and they have a, 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 uh, how do you say, a fun relationship with the bartender. She gives them chores to do so they can eat and stay there, and they both form a bond with her, but it turns out they're not getting along very well, but they're <laughs> they both- They think they are. <laughs> they think they are. When, uh, Rand is kidnapped by her. Meanwhile, Matt is hanging out with a friend he made. The Gleeman Tom. 
Tom. Uh, I love these ridiculous fantasy names. Yes. <laughs> Tom and Matt. Can, can you even imagine if you knew people with names like that in the real world? Or Tam. That's right. <laughs> Which is Matt backwards. <laughs> That's right. A gleam. Thank you, Alucard. <laughs> Great. A gleeman appears to be a bard. It's true. A musician. Chelsea and I knew a gleeman back in our uh, Ren Fair days. That's great. They're a bard that kind of tells stories. Is that why there's a show called Glee? I mean, I think that might be where the term Glee comes from. Gleeman. I thought that was just like being happy, right? <laughs> glee. Sure. Filled with glee. I mean, I've never heard the phrase Gleeman. I'm pretty sure the term, or I'm pretty sure the name of the show Glee is because they're a glee club. Ah, I see. Which is a singing troupe. But a Gleeman is an old Celtic kind of bardic tradition of storytelling and collecting knowledge to spread throughout the populace. Yes. Right. And traveling from place to place telling your tales. Right. So anyway, Matt's being kind of a jerk around the town. And so when he uh when he's done jerking it, he takes his <laughs> gleeman and uh they he goes to rob the corpse in the cage. Yep. And Tom goes to bury the corpse in the cage, and they end up doing both together. <laughs> Isn't that nice? This is how friendships begin. Exactly. You head out to the gibbet where the local thief was uh hung. I guess he wasn't even a thief, he was like a tribal warrior. Yeah. And then you just bond over Taking his goods and burying him. That's right. Rand, while being kidnapped <laughs> by the bartender, uh, kicks through a door that is strong enough that three buff people couldn't do it. And he starts running away and he meets up with Matt. And Matt's like, what the fuck? He's like, we gotta run. And so they start running. <laughs> but the bartender you know how you like, do. you walked right into my trap. Both of you did. But guess what? Hail Satan. <laughs> or or the dragon. god or god or god and uh we're not sure yet uh she tells a very confusing story that's right she's like guess what maybe the dragon was a good guy and uh i like him and one of you guys is probably him i see you in my dreams you're my dream fellas oh and then as they're saying uh a knife explodes her throat and she's dead Oh, God. And the Gleeman starts doing a little dance. And then they, uh, He's like, heading east, boys. Yeah, let's travel together. And then it, it's, it's, that's it, right? Well, he does more the movie code of like, oh, they're, they're like, where are you going? He's like, east. And then he walks away knowing that they're going to follow. Yeah. And he also calls her a dark friend, which is like, you know. It sounds nice to me. Sounds racist to me. <laughs> Because uh, the dark is a race in this, I guess. Could be. I'm very confused. I mean, they cast a real life African American person for the role. I think she was British. Is that right? British, maybe African British person. I'm not sure. I don't know. Mm. I noticed it. I feel like a lot of the cast is British or European. That makes sense. Well, there it is. Well, you know. Meanwhile, while all that business is going on. <laughs> Perrin and Egwene are having a real windy time out in... Wolf County. <laughs> I guess wolf country, yeah. They're running from some wolves. Uh, they're trying to stay out of the wind in a very windy plain. But doesn't Egwene speak to the wind? I don't understand. I thought they were friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, can't she just be like, dude, calm down. Like, just... <laughs> 
blow that way. <laughs> but she doesn't. A bit of an amateur. Yeah. They they do manage to make a fire. Uh, we're not sure. Or I guess we, the audience, are sure that Egwene does it. But Perrin doesn't know if he was able to do it by sparking a flint or if Egwene's magic lit the fire. Then they start moving again. Perrin's having some dark dreams about wolves killing Layla or eating Layla after he killed her. And maybe he's the dark one. Yeah, he seems to be like kind of in his own dream, like flashing into the dragon. Mm -hmm. It's actually pretty cool. Yeah, it's actually a really cool scene. I think it's a good character building moment. The dreams are some of the coolest parts of the show. He and Egwene have a moment where she's like, it's not your fault. And we don't think that she knows that Perrin is living with the guilt of having accidentally killed Layla. But she's saying what he needs to hear, possibly for a reason that he is not aware of. After that, they continue traveling and they run into some friendly tinkerers. Yeah. The Tuatha'an, who basically say like, hey, we're travelers who are often persecuted and we know what it's like to be stuck out on the road. So here's some food and blankets and you can hang out with us and we're going to take care of you. And they seem great. What? The traveling culture is persecuted? Oh, no. It's not like in our world, Jack. It's not like in our world where that hasn't been happening since the dawn of history. Yeah, exactly. This is a fantasy, you see. In modern day, it wouldn't be perpetuated either. No, we would certainly hope not. Yes. (laughs) But yeah, so that's kind of uh, the end of Egwene and Perrin's story here. They have a rough start, and then things seem to be going really good for them. And I really hope that we get more time with the Tinkerers, because they are fucking rad. And so far, they're some of my favorite characters. Yeah, they're awesome. And so basically, all of the characters are trying to head east, still going to the White Tower. And they're just kind of like... They don't have cell phones and they can't text each other. So Man, that would make this so much easier. They're just all kind of like hoping to meet up with each other at the White Tower. Can we use like a sending spell? No, not we don't have that magic. Cool. All right. Fuck they don't it. have like scrying magic like in Spelljammer. So. <laughs> or all of D&D. <laughs> <laughs> just have better magic, guys. That's your solution. Yeah. But anyways, that's the summary. We should probably head into the Dells. Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of the Wheel of Time. So, one of the continuing themes that we have throughout this show, which is like the main theme, is like light versus dark. A completely original theme, never used in any other piece of fiction. It's not tired or full of biases at all. But so, in this episode, they focus more on like the darkness within. Ooh, I like that darkness. Yeah. That's my favorite darkness. The darkness within is exemplified by the characters of Perrin and Dana the most, but also Matt. Matt's definitely building up a little bit of angsty anxiety. Mm Mm-hmm. Since, I mean, he's got it in him from the beginning, but in the last episode when he stole the shadow knife, it really seemed to start to have a more profound effect on him going into this episode. It's true. But with Perrin, he's having these dark dreams about 
I said dark dreams. Um, about the, the lighting is really bad. They're dark dreams. <laughs> about wolves attacking his wife and... No, I think they're just having dinner. He's living with this guilt of what happened during the Trollic attack when he accidentally killed Layla. And um, it's kind of eating away at him. He doesn't really have like a clear perspective about it. He blames himself completely. And um, I mean, the fact that he was like going into this battle rage, it was almost like he was becoming a berserker in that first episode. And as since then, we've seen him developing kind of some kind of relationship to wolves. The animal within. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. Wolves seem to be kind of associated with the dragon as like predators, I suppose. Yeah, I think this is your typical like the Lord of Evil commands the animals because in a really dumb morality system, animals are evil and not just neutral agents of nature doing whatever they need to to survive. Yeah. It was interesting because when Perrin and Egwene found those tracks before they met up with the traveling people, Egwene kind of points out that the wolves seem to actually be chasing them to the tracks, almost leading them there in a way, right. because they never attacked them. And once they found the tracks, the wolves went away. Yeah, the wolves are like, hey, go meet up with these cool tinkerer people. They're awesome. Hang out with them. Get a ride. So... Perrin is kind of realizing, like, there's some kind of power building within him, and he has some kind of tie to the darkness that seems to go back before the Trolloc attack. Interesting. I do remember when they find the Tinkerer Trail, they're worried that they could be following the tracks of white coats. Yeah. Which is a valid concern. <laughs> Considering their destination is the White Tower. Because the yeah. white coats are probably harmless if you're Perrin. Unless they know that Perrin might be the dragon. In which case, maybe they'll like him even more. Or much less. Seeing as the dragon is the enemy of the Aesidae, and so are the white coats, maybe they'd like him. Maybe. Know what I'm saying? Or maybe, maybe. they are against all of it. <laughs> they could be against all of it. The enemy of your enemy isn't always your friend. That's right. So let's talk a little bit about what Dana says to Matt and Rand, because this was a scene that starts to break down the assumed worldview that the dragon is basically just a tyrant who will kill all the common folk, right? That's kind of the narrative that the Aes Sedai are pushing, that if the dragon comes back and it embraces the darkness or they embrace the darkness or whatever, then everybody's fucked. But Dana is of the perspective that, hey, you know what? The dragon is actually kind of a hero of the people and will liberate us all. And that's what I'm working for because Dana, we, we only see her a little bit in this episode, but she's a really important character to this story arc. She, We know that she wants more from life. She doesn't like living in this mining town. She basically says, like Chelsea said earlier, you're born in the dirt, you work in the dirt, and you die in the dirt. She wants to get out. 
for her, the dragon is a way to break free of the mundane life that is like this hard scrabble existence that she doesn't want to keep living. She sees the dragon as a symbol of freedom. And liberation of the common people from the oppression of the Aes Sedai. I mean, and honestly, based, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, she's kind of an anarchist. <laughs> well, she was saying that uh, the reason her town is so screwed over is because nothing has really changed in the thousands of years since this last happened. Right. She's like, since the wheel turned, all the establishments built back up, and now all the same horrible stuff that caused it last time is happening again. Yeah. We gotta break that heckin' wheel. And I get it. Valid. I don't trust the Aes Sedai. Uh, Four out of the five people who could be the dragon, I like so far. So, dragon, he's cool with me right now. There you go. Jack is going to be the next dark friend. Love it. <laughs> oh, nice to have you. Yes. Um. So, if she wants the dragon to break the Wheel of Time, that means that she wants... It's like death for everyone, really. It's the end of time. He's going to destroy their world. <laughs> and I um, mean, I'm not... Uh, yeah. I don't know if I'm against that. <laughs> um, and this is kind of coming out of her feeling of hopelessness. Like she's yes. never going to have anything better than what she has. And she's miserable, um, which is kind of born out of this economic depression and being feeling like she's completely unable to break free from the bonds of her life. Yeah, she lives in a place where there is no hope of things getting better. Yeah. Like, and I mean, mining towns are interesting, right? Because mines run dry eventually. The the ore becomes harder and harder to get unless you start digging deeper. But eventually you're going to run out of supply. And then most likely that town is going to start to just get worse and worse. And eventually will have no economic certitude. Yes. And there's just one more thing about what she said that I want to touch on. And that's about bringing the dragon to the Dark One. I forgot. I was like rereading a synopsis of the first book. I was like kind of reminding myself of what happens in it. And I was confused when we were first watching the show. I thought the dragon was kind of synonymous for the Dark One. But the Dark One is a separate en entity from the dragon. The dragon is like a powerful male mage. And the Dark One is, like, Satan, basically. <laughs> or, like... My um, favorite character in any piece of fiction. Or he could be kind of like Sauron. So. Well, I mean, we all know that we must join with him. Mm -hmm. We must join with Sauron. Exactly. But, um... For we have chosen death. So, uh, I felt like I got that cleared up a little bit. Yeah... One thing I think the show could really focus on is we understand that the forces of darkness are awesome so far. <laughs> and that, That's the most important takeaway we have. And that the established forces of light are cringe. <laughs> I would like them to build up the light a little bit more. Yeah. Because they say like, oh, goodness, the light, instead of like, oh, God, right? And stuff right. like that. They evoke the light as a good thing. Yes. And we talked in the last episode about how light and dark is a shorthand because the audience is already going to understand the implications of it. However, the show has not implied that the light are good guys. 
I like I keep complaining about the light seems like a bunch of fascists. And yeah. so I I really You're not wrong. I really feel like and we just got a character who is a follower of the darkness that has expressed how the darkness is a force of freedom for people and how the system we have in place which focuses on the light is a bad thing. So it's like you're swaying me, Jack. I'm coming over to the dark. Like, why are that? I think this the dark is where it's at in this world. I'm totally convinced. I think it might be a scorched earth approach from the sound of it. However, because Di is Diana her name? Donna. Dana. 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 It's Dana, but it's pronounced in a crazy way. <laughs> it, it was a little vague. You said, uh, Chelsea, that it's like the end of the world, everyone dies, and it ceases to be. It's one interpretation. Yeah, that's obviously bad, because this world is not devoid of goodness. No. Right. But the thing is, like, from a Christian point of view, right? All the suffering is building up to something that's better, right? There's some value in the world in the hope that progress is happening. Right. That That is the narrative we often get from... A lot of world religions. Which is where a lot of the light-dark motifs come from. Like Christianity. And I'm just saying, we don't get that in the show yet. The idea that the light does bring hope. So far we've heard that the dark brings hope in a kind of restructuring of the world. And we have not been shown that there is value in the structures that are in place. Right. People seem to have difficult lives in all the contexts that we've seen them in so far. That's right. Except for the people in power who are of questionable morals and claim to praise the light. That's right. And a lot of, you know, uh, fantasy settings that use the light, they show people who are very like classically Western virtuous, just like very trusting and compassionate, patient and things like that. The agents of the light in this are violent, not trusting, very aggressive people. A lot of people in the show are very aggressive. Mm. I haven't really, we haven't seen many characters that bring typical, like quote unquote, light values into the world. Right. We've got the Dark, who I guess are the Trollocs, and the Eyeless, who are violent murderers. And then we've got the White Coats and the Aes Sedai, who are manipulative and sometimes torturous murderers. Like, the best moment of what I would call the light in this series so far has been Perrin... Hugging his wife when they seem to be going through hard times in episode one. And Matt doing his best to protect his sisters. And he references that a bit in this episode where he's telling Dana, like, there are people back home I have to take care of. But that's not part of the message of the light. That's not the goal. So uh, I'm just really confused about what they're trying to show here. Yeah, I mean, that's just the kind of the will of the common people. They don't care. They don't concern themselves with the light and dark so much as just trying to survive and get by. That's true. Um, and we don't get a very clear definition of what the light is, like why it's good, like Jack's talking about. We, we get the most information about the dark. 
And that is a problem. And I want to come back to that as a problem of adaptations from books to video media. <laughs> um, but this is a great time to talk about Matt. Because as Jack, as you brought up, he cares about his sisters, but um, Jamie, you were saying that he doesn't really care about what's going on with the light or dark. He really just wants to try to do his best to like get ahead any way he can. He and uh, Dana are pretty similar in that way. They're not satisfied with the life they've been given, but they don't know how to like break out of it, really. And he kind of is very opportunistic, uh, which you pointed out, Jack. He tries to, uh, he steals, you know, he, he tries to make it any way he can. He rogues. He's a rogue. Yeah. He really is roguish. Yeah. Classic rogue. He wants to just go back to the two rivers because he doesn't really believe that the, any of them could actually be the Dragon Reborn. He thinks they're too low born. Like, every all of it's beyond them. They're too simple. Like, that is a real hopeless attitude to have. It's pretty self-defeating. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, we know from his backstory that his parents never had the emotional stability to take care of him. Yeah. And they lash out at each other in public a lot. Yeah. So he's never really had good role models. Yeah, I don't think Matt has self-confidence. It's been beaten out of him from his upbringing and the hard life that he's lived. And he's been really poor. Yeah. Like, the best thing that's happened in Matt's life was that one time his friends pooled money together so he could have lanterns during the winter, right? Yes, exactly. He has lowered himself to everyone else's expectations. Yeah. Which is, I think, a thing that people do in real life, right? They do. And it, the stealing, from his perspective, it seems like is a means to survival. And it, I'm sure part of why he lashes out is because he is doing something that is considered shameful just to be alive. Yes. His existence is kind of predicated on breaking social norms. Yet he's one of the best characters so far. Yeah, absolutely. I love Matt. And when he's kind of, like, trying to talk to Perrin about, like, being cold and, like, just a few other things where he's, like, complaining or confiding, Perrin this episode is making fun of him a lot. And then Rand. his kid- Rand. Yeah, Rand. And, uh, Rand is surprised when Matt lashes out at him. He doesn't even try to, like, show any sympathy for his friend. I get that they're young teenagers. Yeah. yeah. Rand is going through a lot. He's having a, kind of a weird, uh, like Jack pointed out earlier, I think, like he's having an up moment right now that seems to kind of come out of nowhere. He should feel very badly right now. <laughs> the night before, he got separated from his girlfriend and his friend. Not even his girlfriend anymore. That's right. And his guide. Yeah. Right? So I like I don't see why he's in a good mood. <laughs> like it's not that he is hopeful, he is jolly yeah. this episode. <laughs> it's like I don't see where this came from. He is uncharacteristically jovial. Yes. And Matt's kind of pointing that out to him and saying like 
why are you just doing whatever the ace did I tell you? We should go back home. Like, I think he's feeling kind of betrayed. I think so, too. And that's why he's lashing out. Because Matt clearly doesn't believe that the Trollocs are following them. Because Moraine has said, like, if you go back to the two rivers, the Trollocs are going to come and kill everybody. And Matt clearly doesn't believe that. If he did, he wouldn't be trying to go back to his family because he would know that he was just getting them killed. That's right. Also, we learned this episode that they aren't going to kill the the reincarnates. The Trollocs. The Trollocs. They are working for the Dark One and the Eyeless, who their goal is just to capture the reincarnates of the dragon, like we've been saying for the last couple of episodes. Though that could be a fate worse than death, as far as we know. Well, because now we know they want to turn them into allies of the Dark, whoever the Dragon Reborn is. Because it seems like the dragon could go either way. They could become an agent of the light or the dark. I'm just saying, if the Eyeless wanted to get the dragon and like bring him to the dark one, I feel like the best thing they could have done is come in and be real nice and be like, hey, here's a bunch of food. You guys are poor. Come with us. We'll take care of you. You'll be set up. You'll be like a god, basically. Like, come hang out. The Ace and I come at him all mysterious-like. The Trollocs come at him with blood in their eyes. Where's the nice people? Yeah. It's true. And here's a counterpoint to the idea that the Dark should not be winning this scenario. Right. Right? Okay. The, uh, we are hearing that similar events are happening that happened, was it two or 3,000 years ago? Three. Three, yeah. 3,000 3, years ago. The institutions that were very problematic for people have risen back up to power, and the mm -hmm. darkness has risen up to meet it once again. If they defeat the darkness, is this all they have to look forward to again in 3,000 years? And if the light has not proven to be a hopeful progressive entity, is that wheel worth preserving? That's very Dark Souls, right? Yeah, I, was, yeah. I brought that up during the episode. Like after Dana's speech, I was like, "This is a Dark Souls right here because we've got these, this, we've got this dominant narrative that the light is good and you should preserve the light because the light will keep things going the way they always have been." With the implied backstory that the way things have been is right and good, but for people like Matt and Rand, all of our primary characters. Their lives have been, have run the spectrum, right? Parents had a rough time. We know that there was some, maybe a, a lost child or something at some point in his backstory. Matt clearly has had a really rough time. Rand's done pretty good, but I think it seems like um, he lost his mother, right? And, and he and his father kind of lived like a an isolated life. Yeah. Egwene is kind of the one who's had the best life in a lot of ways because she has this role of, kind of authority and power as like a future wisdom she's been brought up in in this but she also lives pretty simply which is fine like i'm not saying anything that that's a bad thing necessarily but kind of like jack saying like what about this world is worth preserving if everyone is stuck in this cycle where if the light prevails people will kind of go on being subjugated by power structures like the Ace of Die and the White Cloaks. They haven't made a very strong case for why the light needs to be preserved over the dark at all. Well, it's it's a good case for the people preaching that narrative. 
because they're the ones in power. Right. It's really easy for them to be like, we should preserve the light. The light's good. I'm in charge. Therefore, things are as they should be. This well, is this is the role that monarchs have played throughout history. I get it. What I'm saying is they haven't made a very strong case for the good of the common people. Like for the like to the audience, right? Well, <laughs> yeah. uh, at least to us, the audience who is aware of things like class struggle. That's right. I think this is problematic because you don't want the philosophy of oh, maybe the world should just end to apply. To the real world, right? <laughs> yeah. This is a or fan- do we? This is a fantasy world that is not as well planned as our reality. Take that however you like. <laughs> our reality <laughs> is much more complex than this fantasy sure. setting. Yeah. I feel way more comfortable saying this fantasy setting is better off dead than the real universe. <laughs> Don't apply the logic to us and the idea that you could be convinced watching this oh, the world is better off burning. And applying that to our real world, I think is damaging. I agree. And I feel like this leads perfectly into the topic I wanted to discuss about the problem with adaptations sometimes that can happen. So this is an adaptation of a book that was published in- This is a book? (laughs) I broke (laughs) Chelsea. (laughs) It was published in 1980. It was being written in at least the late 70s by Robert Jordan. So you're Jordan. saying that the worldview is perfect and no notes. So <laughs> it the storytelling styles are simpler and more straightforward than we're used to today. And also In the book or in the show? The book. Okay. And he was playing around with very stark ideas about good and evil being encompassed by these ideas of light and dark, which didn't really have nuance to them and have since been heavily examined. And people are moving away from such a stark dichotomy of explaining the world, at least to some extent. So you're saying that the show is a product of a re-examination of these themes. The problem with the show, as I see it, is that it's adapting the book, but not updating these ideas enough. Really? I actually felt differently. I felt like the show is doing a good job of showing the possibility that the narrative that the main characters have been told their whole lives is incorrect. My issue with it is the part of this symbol of light versus dark, that it still exists at all. (laughs) And, but to the extent that everybody still kind of sees, oh, anything that I think of as bad or negative can be dark, and anything I think of as good or positive can be light. And I, I talked in a previous episode about how that's still perpetuated in spiritual circles. And people kind of treat it a little bit more nuanced than they did in the past. But it's still a dichotomy that's there. And I think that taking this perspective limits our thinking about our lived experience. Just an easy way to frame it is like 
the one of the ways that light and dark doesn't really apply is have you ever thought something was bad and then changed your mind later? Like yes. someone did something bad and when you get more context, you're like, oh, I get why they did that. You thought it was darkness. Oh, turns out it's like understandable. Or oh, you thought it was some... just man's inhumanity towards man all along. Or you like something and then you find out it's problematic later on. It's and then you're not invalidated for liking or disliking it sure. the way you did before, but it was more complicated than you thought. And that really uh, expands and applies to more and more to the point where you're like, should I really be saying that anything is dark or light, right? It's all just what it is. And I think that is more light-leaning in this context, but I don't think that phraseology should carry over. Well, I think that the problem that a lot of fantasy has is that fantasy worlds tend to be made up of magical elements, right? And a lot of times, like, let's talk about D&D, because &D, I can do that with authority, I think. In D&D &D, uh, lore, a lot of times... There are literally forces of good and evil in the universe that are yes. demonstrably and self-identifying as good and evil. Because the reality of our real world is that most people think of themselves as good, right? And that yes. their behaviors are good and righteous or whatever. Or, or like, if they're part of a dominant worldview, then their way is the right way and the moral way. And many people do not self-identify as, like, agents of evil. Like in Dungeons and Dragons, where you have like the goddess of evil, like Loth, or a god of evil, like Bane or Asmodeus. Exactly. <laughs> but it's way more fun to be killing things that are forces of darkness, things that you don't have to feel bad about killing, right? If For I a were, lot of people, yeah. If I were to kill someone in real life, it would ruin my day. <laughs> it would just be a bummer. It would be a bummer. So it's like a way of saying, like, oh, I want to kill someone, but only if they're objectively bad. <laughs> only if they are, like, wearing the the black robes and, like, sacrificing a virgin. Yeah, only oh if God. their evil is a tangible, not subjective thing. Something that is measurable and real. But so here's the problem, right? That exists in, a, in like, so much fantasy. Is the essentialization of good and evil. Yeah. I'm going to make the argument here that that does not exist in the real world. Uh, yeah, for sure. Well, that's, that's what that's we're saying. That's kind of my point, too. Yeah. But the problem is, and I've been reading a lot of, um, we'll call it discourse lately, about, say, fantasy role-playing games, where it is really clear that real human people today still believe that evil is a thing that exists. And that there are evil groups of people. That's true. And so my point is that this fantasy worldview of the essentialized good and evil gets overlaid on our real world by real people. And I just saw like a Twitter thread that maybe some of the listeners have seen where somebody was basically making the argument for their D&D campaign that evil races have to exist because I want my setting to be realistic. And that is insane. I really feel like you should only include evil races to be fun, right? <laughs> because fantasy, with a game, it's supposed to be enjoyable, not as serious. 
Sure. So you put evil things in there, so not every conflict is like, are we monsters for doing what we're doing? Unless you're me. I like to make my players think that they're monsters for what they're doing. I mean, but that's, <laughs> you do it to be fun, right? Sure, yeah. I think this stems out of, like, an unexamined worldview. and an <laughs> Absolutely. Unexamined life. Like, people that think that only the other can be evil. And with this idea of evil or, or do things that can be harmful, we'll say. Or that the only people in their group who do bad things are the few bad apples. And we all know that a bad apple is, does absolutely nothing to the rest of the bunch. Uh-huh. Yes. What I was trying to say is that like people are all capable of doing things that can be harmful to others. And people often like don't reflect upon their own capabilities of what they can do or sure. what, what they're capable of in certain contexts. And any one of us is capable of perpetuating damaging actions, you know, or ideas or ideas, um, you know, or helpful or compassionate ones. And life is more complicated. <laughs> basically well i think that that's what jack is getting at yeah you know talking about how it's more fun in a game or a fantasy world to not have to for some people to not have to examine the morality of their actions all the time but the problem is that as i like the example from like the twitter arguments i saw that worldview gets stuck in people's heads and they go like no i know that there's evil because and, and like every piece of media I consume tells me that evil is a real thing. And then they start to think that the real world is like that. And it's unfortunate. <laughs> I'm going to tie it to a controversial real world event. I love it. Please. The invasion of the Ukraine. Okay. Okay. People really are feeling like Russia is evil. Yes. A lot of people are feeling negatively about Russia due to that set of events. I as well struggle with the viewpoint that 100,000 evil Russian soldiers lined up at the Ukrainian border and decided to just go in and take it from people who were just living their lives. Sure. And within the first three days, 9,000 Russian soldiers were killed. And I had the perspective that 9,000 wasted lives was a tragedy, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. There's the perspective they ran into another country to take everything they had. But if they just had not made that one decision, what could 9,000 people have done for the world, right? And uh, it's really hard to feel like Russia isn't being evil right now. But... It's difficult to imagine them as humans who have just made a mistake, right? But to some extent, that is kind of the case. And it's like in the military, there's like a chain of command and there's a higher, a stark hierarchy in pretty much all militaries. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Or, or like militaristic forces. The, the individual soldiers are not the ones making the decisions about where they go. And then you get into the murky waters of like, they're just following orders idea. That's a complicated one. Yeah. Right. It didn't work for the Nazis, but all soldiers are out to kill people. And in a armed conflict. And then, sure. <laughs> but the thing is, right, 
doesn't just following orders like it really just matters whether you win or lose the conflict i feel like well victory uh, i'm sorry uh, history is written by the victors absolutely it's true just following orders might not work if you lose but if you win it's it can be fine right like what america did in vietnam it's hard not to view america as the bad guys in that which a lot of americans do yes. yeah but like you don't go up to a Vietnamese, like a Vietnam War veteran and be like, you know, you're evil, right? <laughs> I mean, there was a narrative that people did that a lot. And it's actually pretty untrue. The like the uh, sorry, the Rambo narrative that like soldiers were being harassed and stuff. A lot of protesters felt an affinity for soldiers and saw themselves in that. That's right. And, uh. It's easy to say that the invading soldiers are doing something evil, which maybe they are, because they're going in and they're taking and they're killing. Sure. But the thing is, that is a result of many other injustices that have occurred. Absolutely. The fact that it got to that point is the sign that something bad has been happening. Yes. And a lot of people are like, oh, it's not the soldiers, it's Putin. Well... Yeah, but Putin isn't the one taking the Ukraine by himself with a machine gun. You know what I'm saying? There's all the other people in power that are supporting him and wants to do what he says. Exactly. <laughs> and there are exceptions. Like, there have been Russian soldiers that have defected and have sure. escaped in the Ukraine and things like that. And a lot of Russians don't support what's going on. Who knows? Maybe there's even love blossoming on the battlefield exactly yeah yeah. thank you the boss but you see how complicated (laughs) this is the trollocs versus the acidai don't have this ambiguity and this is so much more dramatic like the forces of darkness just being ambiguous evil entities coming in killing villagers is way less like dramatic than a russian soldier being like Hey, Ukrainian farmer, I'm trying not to do this anymore. Will you harbor me, right? Sure. Isn't that way crazier? That is yes. so much more interesting. And it's a much better story in a lot of ways. And I feel like they could have done something like that. Like, in this episode, we noticed one of the Trollocs had, like, really human-looking eyes. That's right. Blue eyes. We realized that right before he tore open another Trolloc's, a wounded Trolloc's stomach and started eating him alive. Exactly, right? Missed opportunity. Well, that was interesting, but like... It was after. They were behaving more like ants than like sentient people. Exactly. But isn't the opportunity for like a soldier that invaded your country asking you for help and to improve Isn't that a much better way to show the examples of light versus dark also? Because you can display graciousness from the person helping him or by him defecting, right? I mean, isn't that why, like, Avatar The Last Airbender is one of the greatest pieces of media ever made? Yeah. Because we get a character like Zuko who basically has to be in that same situation, right? When he is being harbored as a fugitive from the Fire Nation by a friendly farming family. Yeah, and exactly. has to make a decision about where his loyalties lie versus how he's going to survive. Yeah. So, Jack, what I'm picking up on is you're talking about humanizing your opponents, and that's not often done in fantasy, right? And very rarely. I feel the I really feel the lack of it, and especially watching this show is highlighting it for us. I feel like 
And this whole franchise, the books and the show, they are inspired by the Lord of the Rings. And the Trollocs are kind of like stand-ins for the orcs and, and goblins. The poor orcs and goblins. <laughs> Neither foe gets humanized. They're always just purely evil to be killed without remorse. And both are sentient. Like the Trollocs, we get this idea that they're probably sentient. Yeah. And they are just like choosing to be evil. And there's no nuance there at all. And so it's just easy to feel like you can kill them, like I said, without remorse, without needing to worry about the implications of it. Exactly. They kill without remorse, so it's okay for you to kill them without remorse. Right. Isn't that weird? Doesn't that sound weird? And that is exactly the problem I have with the people who go, I need to have evil races in my fantasy settings because that's what the real world is like. I see, yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. And that is the problem that this show is clearly perpetuating. I, I was saying earlier, I think it does some parts of the light and dark at least more nuance. And maybe that was infused in the show. I don't know because I haven't read the books. But I'm not saying it's doing it well. I'm not saying that we are getting a nuanced perspective where we could look at this and go like, well, what if the forces that we're being told are evil are not so bad? Which is what Avatar does really well, right? It humanizes yeah. the Fire Nation while pointing out that the Fire Lord is a fascist dictator. Yeah. The people of the Fire Nation are more complicated. We're not getting that in the Wheel of Time. We're getting the forces of darkness use these monstrous troll people, Trollocs, who will literally eat their friend if the situation arises. And there's no way to see ourselves in the forces of evil in this show. That's right. They have not humanized the dark or the light. And that's why I'm like, well, if the world isn't human, if the morality in the world isn't human, what's wrong with it being destroyed? I don't have any reason to want the world to continue. Jack, you bring up an interesting point because they do humanize characters and it's the ones that are caught in between the struggle between the light and dark. Matt and Perrin, I think. Not as much Rand and the girl. Egwene. Egwene. <laughs> because they're like the basic milk toast protagonists, right? <laughs> we haven't gotten to see what their darkness is of their backstories. Right. So much. And it's you, the darkness of their backstories. That phrasing. Just the, the, amb- like the struggle of their lives. Sure. Or why they have become who they are. Because, like, there doesn't, ha- like, darkness, right? That We're right. saying it basically doesn't exist, right? Yeah. It's like, we haven't been compelled to be like, I wonder why they are the way they are. There is no reason for it so right. far. It's like, who cares? We've got, yeah, like you said, we've gotten that from Matt and Perrin. And it makes them more compelling characters, just right off the bat. Like, for me, in the first episode, I knew that Matt and Perrin were going to be the interesting ones. And that could change over time, where Egwene and Rand become more interesting. But we get a lot of information about those two characters that primes us going forward to look at them a little bit more closely, I think. Yeah. They're not just blank slate characters for us to imprint any feelings onto. Right. They're characters with a, with a richer tapestry of a backstory. Mm-hmm. It makes them more compelling and interesting to follow. Yeah, and I do like them, 
because to a degree they are the kindest characters so far. They're the ones who are the most like friendly and they're trying to form bonds and stuff like that and they like they care about being healthy to some degree but again it's not shown why they value that. Yeah, well I mean we know like Matt for example like his driving motive is to protect his younger sisters and isn't that awesome that's super cool that's so commendable it's unfortunate that he's in a situation where his parents can't do that for them but he's willing to step up and that makes him one of the most relatable characters in the show and i know it's one of the most interesting parts as well because he has such a chip on his shoulder toward everyone else the fact that he has that deep compassion for his sisters is interesting. Yeah, it's unusual for a character like him. But I've met people in real life really similar to that exact situation, where to everyone they're sort of a dick, and then they're like, but my mom and my sister I would do anything for. I love right. them. It's like, really? Uh, I feel like you're kind of like misogynistic and kind of like not very empathetic at all, but you really care about your family <laughs> and like the women in your family too, which is interesting. People contain multitudes. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's just like So I, do the people that do bad things. Yeah, exactly. So this show is really missing out by trying to take such a simple worldview. And I noticed the rating on Amazon dropped half a star. Yep. And it You mean the rating on the street on the unnamed streaming service in which we watch the show. That's right. And uh I was saying, like, during the break that we had, I'm like, it so deserves. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. Not, like, not that it deserves zero out of five, but I think it's deserving where it is e- averaging out to. <laughs> I, I, this is a problem of it trying to too faithfully adapt a book that was written over 40 years ago without updating the concepts enough well i'm sure by the end of this series we will talk about the problems of adaptation more because there's also the idea of fan backlash that drives a lot of adaptations of series and shows and movies that's right well uh yeah it's true when you when you're looking and at art and criticizing it you do have to look at the era it came from and a lot of people alive today have issues with people from the era this came from. So I think that's where a lot of the frustrations are being born as well. Because a lot of the issues, like complaints we have about the show are like real topics. Because the people who may carry values from the time the show was made are still alive. And we are conflicting with them to this day. So We like, were just talking about that last night. Yeah, so <laughs> naturally we're frustrated about some of the themes in the show. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, uh, it would be very interesting if it became more of a habit to adapt older stuff with more modern ideals and letting the plot differentiate based on that. I mean, it worked great in, uh, the green Knight. It's like, it's like Marvel's what if, right? People liked like, Oh, a retelling. If this one thing changed, what if, uh, you know, the main characters were a little more modern in their morality and then just let the plot differentiate from that point on? Yeah, there's this false narrative that like 
characters in fiction are somehow like timeless when they are like you said jack the product of the era that they were written in right yeah that there's no character that's just like an archetype for good morality because we don't have that in the real world we have complex cultures and cultural values and stuff that would be recognizable and unrecognizable today if it was written in Shakespeare's era or in Robert Jordan's era or what's being written today. They're all products of when they were created. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess the idea that there isn't good and bad should not extend to what we are saying now. Because we're saying that there are problems with it because of the era it comes from. And that doesn't mean it is wholly bad. There is definite value in it. But it is the idea that the problematic aspects of the show are unexamined that is my problem with it. Because it's really hard to focus on the good when they are not focusing on the bad. And so I I would say, like, just the people who are listening who are from that era is who this is aimed at. (laughs) People are like, wait, I was born in the 70s, right? I grew up in the 80s. It's like... I mean, I grew up in the 80s. It's like, yeah. But... Being alive today, you know that the ideals of the 80s weren't perfect. And so <laughs> oh God. I don't I don't like seeing that uh, those ideas unexamined are heroic. Right. And that's the other thing about having the idea of just objectively evil races. It, you can be a hero. And in a system like our real world where morality is a lot more nuanced. Mm-hmm. The idea of what it means to be a hero is a lot more vague. Yeah. Just remember the always true words of chief miles O'Brien from deep space nine. He wasn't just a hero. He was a union man. Yes. I love that. because the real heroes, the real heroes in our world, they're the people who stand up against unfair systems and help rise, help raise even the most other people out of destitution in a helpful way that is not toxic towards other people. You see, I love that it says the systems, not the people in the in the systems necessarily, because that's like we're saying, it's the fact that the people have too much power. That's the problem. Not necessarily that the person is alive. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Like, even if you look back way into history at the original heroes like Hercules and stuff, they're heroic because they kill things that are objectively (laughs) evil with unexamined morality. Like, you don't have to feel bad about killing the Hydra, you know what I'm saying? Right. And up through today, it's like, oh, Superman is fighting Darkseid? Well, Darkseid is, like, unexaminedly evil. Just pure evil. evil, yeah. It's like, okay, so we're still doing the same thing as 3,000 years ago, which is when the dragon was a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. But our world is nuanced, so I'm not down to burn it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's fair. Well, this has been a nice, light conversation. Um <laughs> We haven't even touched on some of the new characters we met this episode, like Tom, but that's okay. We can probably talk about them a little bit in Final Thoughts. All right, guys, we've already said a lot about this episode and some of the larger 
themes that came to us from it. Uh, but where are we standing with the show right now at the end of episode three? So far, I think the show still has a really good vibe. Like, the costumes are beautiful. The towns are cool. Agreed. The mm-hmm. settings. It's just visually nice. I stand by what I said. If you treat it like an action movie where you just, like, let it, s- like, seep over you. Ooh, that's a great word to describe it. Just, like, you know, just let it, just go with the flow of it. Just It'll it be more enjoyable. Because making me think about it, it, it's a challenge. It presents challenging thoughts. And they're really good, but it's not what the show intends to make me think about. So there's value in seeing it and being upset by it. (laughs) The fact that I am not pleased with the series, I think, is proving to be a good thing based on what we talked about today. But it is frustrating to watch. And <laughs> Jack's rave review. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. They aren't giving us a deeper delve into the characters that are the most interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, that's kind of my my takeaway right now. I feel like they have changed enough from the book, and this is based on the first book, The Eye of the World, so far. And um they've already changed some things from the way they occur in that book, but like Rand is not an interesting character in the book either. Well, at least it's consistent. (laughs) And it's like when you're watching it, it's clear like who you want to know more about or see more of. And I don't understand, like if you're already adapting something, why you can't just change it a little bit more. But you know, that could be said for a lot of different media that's adapted from something else. Um, I mean, like I said, fan backlash is a real occurrence that I think um, motivates a lot of adaptations for good or bad. You know, I I just want to say I used to be kind of that way too. I used to want to like see my favorite novels just repeated faithfully in visual form sure and now i've grown to realize that that is really boring yeah (laughs) it like isn't it cool like marvel's what if just because it's like culturally relevant and i'm so happy they made that me too because it's like if you like the media don't you want to see like something new from it exactly yeah Yeah. i mean scott pilgrim isn't that kind of like a great example where we've got, like, the comics, which are a particular story, then the movie, which is a fairly faithful adaptation that goes in different directions and tells different stories. Yeah. And then the video game, which tells a completely different story. Yeah. Also, I'm reminded of Annihilation, which we covered in March. Um, I've read the books. I'm almost done with the third Southern Reach trilogy book. Acceptance. And, yeah. Um, I accept that. Honestly, I did see the movie first, so that does change the way I feel about things sometimes. But I feel like the way I described it before, and I still feel that way, it's like it's like two different people started with the same seed idea and story skeleton and then did their own version of it 
similar to a bardic tradition. And I really hope that we can evolve as a storytelling species to uh, really embrace that a little bit more. <laughs> I think we have to start by embracing new stories. Oh, we need that so bad. Did you have another point yet? <laughs> well, unfortunately, I feel like when you adapt something, there are certain elements of the skeleton that uh, are kind of immovable. Like, mm. I think it would have... I'm assuming that, like, there was never even a thought of, like, should we make the Trollocs, like, not savage murder people because like that's uh, to me i'm assuming that's so much a part of the story i don't know again i have not read the books and i also want to give this story the benefit of the doubt and say that it might go places we're not expecting yet yeah but we haven't seen a lot of that you just made me think like or would we want to adapt it so that the trollocs are humans and there's just like this narrative that they're animalistic because they are berserkers, but they have a whole culture and a way of life, and we get to see a more nuanced, complicated view of them, too. Sure, but then at that point, wouldn't you just be better off writing a new story? And then letting that never get made because only adaptations get made anymore? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the sad reality, right? Like, we just talked about The Northman recently, which was an awesome, like, even that's a retelling, right? That's an adaptation of Hamlet, but it's a new story. And it didn't do super well at the box office because it wasn't a Marvel IP or an adaptation of a popular book from 40 years ago. Yeah. It's just, we are at a place right now where the things that are getting made are often based on something that was already popular. Because the things that are that are massively successful, I should say. And it all has to do with the, the money, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's going to be a, a great new fantasy series one of these days. We'll have to write it. Maybe it's already <laughs> out there. Or maybe it's already <laughs> in our heads. But yeah, I mean, there's still some stuff I'm looking forward to going forward. I really like the new character of Tom the Gleeman. I thought he was interesting. We get a little bit of moral grayness to juxtapose Matt with. Like, this is a character who is kind of a lovable scoundrel, right? He, yeah. He, like, robs a robber who robbed Matt and then is, like, kind of gloating at them and being like, well, I guess I'm giving you an expensive life lesson. And then later on, he's, like, we get a little bit more of his layer as he's telling Matt about this IAL warrior and saying that, like, oh, the people of this town killed this guy because they didn't know that he was coming in peace because they just assumed that these people are, are bad, right? That was we a are... little bit of nuance that we got, right? Yeah, yeah, that was actually a really great part. It was. And so we know that this story is capable of telling nuanced stories about characters who might otherwise be framed as being bad. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to getting deeper and seeing if those themes actually carry through or if they're going to get wasted like they did in this episode by juxtaposing the AL non-bandit who the town of the mining town killed to the purely evil Trollocs who eat each other yeah. when it's convenient for them. Mm -hmm. Because if there's no nuance for the Trollocs, it's hard to buy the nuance for the human characters. But yeah. maybe that's just me and my own biases that there should not be 
quote-unquote savage races, probably, in a lot of fantasy, going forward in the future. We'll see where they go with this. We'll see. But until we see, we'd like to thank everybody for listening to another episode of Satire TV and our coverage of the Wheel of Time. It's been a lot of fun talking with you guys about this and sharing our thoughts with our listeners. And if you're enjoying hearing our thoughts about these shows and movies, you might want to consider following us on social media, too. We're at Swords and Satire on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you follow us, you can keep up with the show, see what we're watching next, and it's a great way to get in touch with us. And if you have the means, uh, and I'm talking less than the price of a cup of coffee... You can go over what the fuck is coffee? to patreon.com slash swords and satire and become a supporter of the show. We would really appreciate it. It helps us do what we love and give you more fun episodes to listen to. So, yeah. Think about that. That's right. But if you can't afford a cup of coffee... <laughs> then another- Which is reasonable and we understand. Yes. That's right. Then another great way you can support the show is by sharing it with your friends and family. Fantasy is a great tool to look at our own reality and see if you agree with its messages or not. I don't agree with the messages of our reality. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, God, everything is (laughs) despawning. We've seen through the illusion. Save us by sharing swords and satire on your social media pages today. We need your help. Yes. <laughs> Just tweet us a picture of your uh, credit card with the three digits on the back. <laughs> tweet it? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then, until next time, Hail Crom! That was fun.